You know, those last two songs fit perfectly together. The idea that we look to Him in the midst of all of our struggles, in the midst of all of the hardship that we face. The song before that was entitled, It Is Well, written by a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was scheduled to go on a trip with his family, but because of business, he wasn't able to leave when they were able to go. So they went on ahead without him. And while they were at sea, the ship that they were on crashed and ended up drowning the entire family. Um, As he would later follow, he asked the captain to let him know when they reached the point where his family had gone down in the sea. And when they reached that point, Horatio sat down and he penned the words to it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. I will tell you the third verse of that song is perhaps my favorite verse ever written to any song uh, that I've ever heard. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, every last bit of it, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. What an incredible truth for us. I've been working through a series and we'll continue in the series today on the myths of the church, but If we're going to be able to identify the myths, we need to start by beginning to recognize what the truth is. And it is the fact that Jesus Christ makes it well within our soul. He's the one who satisfies us. He is the one that we can turn to no matter what we face. You may be going through today some of the greatest trials you could ever imagine. I want you to know that you can turn to him and you can know that he will be there, and you can declare it is well within your soul simply because of his presence there. That is the truth that we need to hear. Now, that has nothing, well, it has little to do with my sermon, but I just felt like sharing that this morning. As we continue this series on the myths of the church, we're going to move perhaps to the most uncomfortable of myths, and it is the idea that the church is only about my money. Uh, There is a mindset within our world today that the church is only about my money. And I'm going to use some boxes that I've used before to help illustrate this for you this morning. There is this idea that perhaps somehow we, as a church, are only interested in what we can get out of people. And to tell you the truth, there probably are some individuals that perhaps would fit into that category, that perhaps they, um, they are somewhat self-seeking. Often they're looking for something that they can, I'm not going to get out anymore, i got a bunch back here, but anyways, there are individuals that they do do everything that they can to get from you as much as possible. And there is this idea that within the church, often the only thing that the church wants is your money. But I'm going to tell you today that the church is far more concerned with your heart than the church is with your money. And I would say that God is far more concerned with your heart than he is about your money. But I'm also going to tell you that the way we handle our money sure tells us an awful lot about our heart. They run together. There is a little bit of overlap. Now, just for the sake of explanation, let me start by beginning what each, let me begin by sharing what each of these boxes might would represent. They're not presents. Don't sit there and think, oh, pastor bought some presents for everybody. Actually, each one of these boxes represents something that we do with our money. 
We'll start with the blue one down at the end. That is blue, right? Am I correct? I'm not good with my colors. Uh, The blue one represents the money that we spend on everything. There are things in our lives. Some of us pay rent. Some of us pay for a mortgage. We pay for utilities. We buy food. We buy gas. That's basically what the blue box is. The blue box represents what we spend our regular uh, money on, whatever that may be. Now, that being said, I'm going to tell you that uh, ideally... An individual will not spend equally in all four of these categories. And we'll look at it and you'll understand why in a moment. For some people, they may have 10 blue boxes in their lives. So that's one box for every 10% of your spending. So some people may have 10 blue boxes and they just spend everything that they get. They live from paycheck to paycheck and they're continually using up everything. The problem is that often an individual wants to put an 11th blue box in their life. Well, what does that do? It creates a problem. What that means by putting an 11th blue box in is you have 100% of your income and you're spending 110% of your income. And when you use that, what happens is you have to introduce the red boxes now. Because the red boxes represent the debt that we have in our lives that we're trying to get rid of. The things that perhaps it's a a credit card, perhaps it's a medical bill. It's something that you're continually paying interest on and you're losing that money. It's almost like you're giving it away every month, but it's because somewhere along the way you needed more than 10 of the blue boxes. So often we introduce this idea of the red box or debt. This one... The green one represents saving. This is something that all of us ought to do. We ought to have some sort of saving in our lives. Every one of us ought to be putting something aside, whether it's for retirement or for college or whatever else. Maybe it's for your children. The point is we need to have savings in our lives. If we don't have savings, what happens is when we do spend 11 boxes, we don't have a place to go other than to the red box. So we need the green box as well. The gold one is the one that we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning. The gold one is really the generosity box. This is the one where we give to God. And if you have 10 boxes, one of them ought to be this one as a minimum. This is the 10th. This is the tithe that God calls us to give. God calls us to give specifically to God. There may be other things you choose to give to. You may choose to help children in need in another country. You may choose to give to a religious school that you support. You may choose to give to somebody on television, but a tithe is what we give specifically to God. And that's something that all of us have to be willing to do as children of God. God expects us to be able to give generously to his people. Now, some believe that the church is only about getting their cut, their 10%. And I will say that certainly there have been churches and ministers who seemed to act this way, but I'll also say that's not the norm. There are many churches out there that are not about trying to get just a little bit extra for themselves. Instead, the overwhelming majority of those in the body of Christ realize that the church and God are far more interested in the heart of the individual than they are in the checkbook. However, the way you handle your money, as I stated before, does say an awful lot about our heart. And as such, the church is concerned about your money, but that is secondary to your heart. One of the greatest comedians of all time was a man named Jack Benny. Possibly his most famous routine was entitled, Your Money or Your Life. 
In this routine, he struggled to make the right decision. Sometimes we're very much like Jack Benny. As we struggle to make decisions about priorities in our lives, although God does not point a gun at us, he does confront us with this very same question, your money or your life. Listen to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus knew the spiritual connection between our wallet and our priorities. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Warning his followers to watch out and be on guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus knew the potential for money to become a stumbling block to us. Yet we live in a world that is caught in the clutches of the desire for more. Our lives are constantly bombarded with messages about products that will make our lives better, keeping us dissatisfied with what we have. Advertisers count on us to always be searching for something bigger and better. We're encouraged to spend our lives chasing after the American dream. We call this the pursuit of worldly possessions. We call it materialism, and it is the enemy of our faith. Jesus said we could have pocketbooks that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. But far too often, people have easily and unhesitatingly traded their lives for their silver and their gold. And sometimes their plastic, which is where the red box came in. Similar to the story Jesus told about the greedy rich fool who tore down all, all of his old barns so he could build bigger ones. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? As Jesus told that story, he introduces an idea that perhaps maybe we need to talk about this morning just a little bit. If you were to die today, what is it that you leave behind? Is it your material possessions? The things that you've worked really hard to gain? Maybe you've been working so hard to get a bigger house or to get a car that has all of the bells and whistles on it. I know I want a convertible, but my wife won't let me get one. What is it that you have worked so hard to earn that if you were to die today, that's what you leave behind. If you've been living for those things, then something is wrong. Jesus said, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Whereas the New Living Translation reads, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. We, like the rich fool, can become so confident in material possessions that we too neglect others and our need for God. Materialism, however, isn't just about collecting the world's stuff. It's about thinking like the world. Materialism is an attitude. 
And John tells us this desire to possess more earthly stuff is certainly not a heavenly one. He says in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I told you at the beginning that the church is far more concerned with your heart than it is your money. But here in this passage, there is a connection that is made in this issue of materialism and this issue of the heart. Notice how it began, do not love the world or anything of the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is an issue of the heart. This is truly about where our passion and our hunger is, where we find our satisfaction. Matthew tells us about a young rich man who came to Jesus asking what good thing he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus told him he needed to keep the commandments, to which the young man responded that he had kept them all and wanted to know what else was necessary. And Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give all to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The scriptures tell us that the man went away very sad. Why? Matthew tells us it's because he had great wealth. It's easy to talk about generosity when we don't really have a whole lot. But what if God called us to give up everything that we have? Someone posted on Facebook, I believe it was even yesterday, a great history of the prosperity that we have. It reflected on some of the the things that we take for granted. I'll tell you what, we are a spoiled nation. We have so much wealth that it's almost unbelievable. People around the world today wish that they had our poverty because our poverty is great wealth to them. A generation, two generations, sometimes 10 generations ago, they would look at our wealth and they would think that we were kings because we have so much. Sometimes it's hard to be generous when we've got a whole lot to give up. But never forget where you got the things that you have. It came from him. He's been good to us. He's been generous to us. And today we need to be grateful for who he is and what he's given Materialism is an enemy of faith because it replaces eternal values in the heart with earthly valuables in one's heart's allegiance. And it considers the temporary more important than the eternal. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. So if we're copying Jesus, living Christ-like lives, we'll always make our decisions, including financial ones, based on on the eternal and not the temporary. It's not about me getting something now, it's really investing for eternity. When considering the spiritual principles of giving, one would not expect non-Christians to give to the Lord's work, but one would expect Christians to be examples in their giving. What I mean by that is we're not necessarily just meeting a quota. We give out of generosity because we have a heart 
to truly make a difference. And as we give to the Lord, what we're really saying is, Lord, I entrust you with this because I believe you can make a difference with this. According to a recent survey by the Barna Group, giving amounts were higher in 2002 and three. And then, by the way, in actual dollars, this rate has gone down every year since then. When the behavior of adults with a significant commitment to Jesus Christ was examined, the outcome showed that only 7% of those claiming to be born again tithed in 2013, which was the last year they presented this information. More than twice as many born-again adults gave no money at all to the church, 18%. Somewhere there is a disconnect between God's word and its practice among those who profess to believe in it. Perhaps believers are acting too much like the natural person who is inclined to think more of the here and the now and the by and by. Paul wrote of a person who does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What we need among believers is a reconnect with the living God. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Some call it repentance. Some call it spiritual renewal. Some call it an old-fashioned revival. But it's time for the church to repent of the fact that we have not been as faithful as we need to be. At the core of the problem is a lack of obedience because we have not committed everything to the Lord. Our scripture text from Psalms encourages us to commit our ways to the Lord, entrusting Trusting in him to do the rest. This is the second step as we, as we look today at tithing. It's not only knowing his grace, but it is actually acting upon his grace. Do you realize how good God's been to you? He's been very generous. Do you trust him enough to be able to use your resources for good? In the Old Testament sacrificial system, no one was to appear before God empty-handed. When they came to worship, everyone was instructed to bring something. No one was to be left out. All were to be included. Servants, both men and women, the Levites, the aliens, the orphans, and the widows. In the New Testament, Christians continue the tradition of weekly offerings. This is not something that was just an Old Testament practice, but rather God expected his people for all generations to do this. Giving indicates the true commitment of the heart and becomes a mark of spiritual maturity. It's always a reminder that we are stewards or managers of what we have. We are not the owners of it. And that our material blessings are given by God. They are always given to us from the storehouse of his love and his compassion. Jesus said, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things, our material needs, would be provided as well. Our giving is simply the supply line that channels the blessings he has already put in reserve for us. The great missionary statesman David Livingston had the right attitude toward commitment when he wrote, I will place no value on anything I may possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. I will use my possessions to promote the glory of him 
to whom I owe all. I wonder if we as a church have that mentality. Not only does the practice of materialism challenge our faith, it is an enemy of the kingdom of God. Choosing to hoard God's blessing causes division in the church, overlooks the needs of others, promotes selfishness rather than sacrifice, and focuses efforts on preserving the status quo rather than expansion, looking to grow. Failing to recognize the principles of kingdom economy, the spirit of materialism battles against the advancement of God's kingdom speaking with another pastor this week and he was sharing with me about some of the struggles that his church has had specifically in the area of worship. There are individuals in their church that they are so set on the fact that it has to be a more modern and contemporary style of worship and they they basically want to leave behind, completely leave behind anything involving tradition. He said, and then there are others in the church that there is this mentality that we need to stick to the tradition, the things that got us here. We need to make sure that we still know all of the words to all of the songs. We feel comfortable. And they're not willing to involve any of the more modern praise and worship songs at all. And he said, what you have is you have two sides that continually fight against each other, each one demanding their own way. You say, well, pastor, what does that have to do with materialism? What does that have to do with our giving? Because it is the same heart and the same mentality that is present in their battle for what they want, their style, their comfort, making sure that they have all the things that they're familiar with. It is that same battle that many Christians face in regard to our finances. See, these are the things we want. These are the things we need, and we need them now. We need them my way. And God says, why do you need them your way? It is that selfish heart that far too often keeps us from being able to accomplish the things that God would have us accomplish. Imagine if we as a church decided it didn't matter whether it was done my way. Imagine if we as a church decided it doesn't matter if maybe I'm not as comfortable as I'm used to being. What kind of difference could we make? What would happen if we as the body of Christ all focused instead of on ourselves, focused on the needs of the kingdom and how to reach people more effectively? I'll tell you what would happen is we would turn this community upside down. But it's hard to do that when we're trying to please ourselves as opposed to actually pleasing him. Materialism is the enemy of the kingdom of God, but again, it is the heart that is the issue. It's not the money. It's the heart. There are some things, though, that we can do to resist materialism. There are some things that we can do, and the first one is we must refuse to be distracted. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. We must not allow earthly things to cloud our vision of the heavenly. Obsessive pursuit of material things distracts us from the real goal and divides our attention and allegiance. 
We must develop the same attitude as Paul when he said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul was a man of great wealth, great respect and admiration among his people, yet he gave it all up so that he could go and make a difference for Jesus Christ. A half-hearted attempt will not cut it. We must be focused on the things of God. Consider the example of Hezekiah, one of the good kings in Israel's history, who did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In 2 Chronicles 31.21 we read, In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. Hezekiah experienced the blessings of God in response to his wholehearted commitment. As a leader, he was a faithful steward of what God had entrusted to his care. When Hezekiah gave, he got. Subsequently, he got, and then he gave. I heard Ron Blue, an incredible financial guru, said, say that you don't give to get. You give so that you can give more. And that's what Hezekiah did. The habit of giving cannot be ignored. Our church, one church leader said, tithing is a practical and scriptural expression of one's total consecration to God. And he is right. Second way we can resist material, materialism is by cultivating the grace of contentment. Paul wrote to Timothy these words, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul realized that contentment is not found in all of the things that we have, but it is found in the one that we have. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip down toward the end this morning. I need you to understand today that giving is a mark of my spiritual devotion to Christ. Church leader Paul Cunningham said, giving is but one step in the direction of total commitment, which is the essence of holy living. Our giving and our living go hand in hand. What we are willing to share is an indicator of what is most important to us. It is a mark of our spiritual devotion to Christ. I'm going to tell you that the church is far more interested in your heart than it is your money, but I'm also going to make it clear to you this morning that if this box does not exist in your life, there is something wrong, spiritually speaking. Our heart is not where it needs to be. I'm grateful today for this church. This church, in my opinion, is one of the most generous churches in the denomination. You guys are good when it comes to tithes. Your tithes have been so faithful in allowing us to do so many great things. But I got to tell you, I do wonder, what could we do if it wasn't 80% of the people tithing, 70% of the time? What could we do as a church if 100% of the people truly gave a tithe every week? 
I'll tell you, there would never be financial struggles for the church. There would never be an issue of, can we do this or can we do that? But rather, now we've got the money, which one are we gonna do? Because the opportunities are there. I wanna challenge you today to examine your heart. You say, well, pastor, I don't know where to start. How, how do I figure out if my heart is where it needs to be? Tell you what, you got an indicator right here. If you look at the fact that you're not giving, and maybe you are, maybe everyone in here is, and today I'm just completely wasting my time. But if you can look at your checkbook, you look at your tithing and you begin to recognize, you know what, I'm not tithing. And I'm going to suggest to you that there is a good probability that there's something else that's not right within your heart. It's not to intimidate anyone, not to make people feel guilty. This is all about the heart. You guys know I hate preaching about money. Most pastors hate preaching about money. It's actually the one thing that I, could, I think I could talk about sex and it would be okay. But if I talk about money, I'm going to step on someone's toes. Most preachers would rather not talk about money. But Jesus talked about it an awful lot because he knew that there is a connection between our faithfulness and giving and the condition of our heart. So I challenge you today to examine your heart. If you need to make some changes, better to start today than tomorrow. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are grateful for the forgiveness of sins, the redemption that has come through you and you alone. As we come before you today, Lord, first of all, we thank you for the generosity that you've shown to us. Thank you for the many ways that you have blessed us in ways that perhaps we often take for granted. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to appreciate your generosity and your goodness to us. But we ask you to examine our hearts today. But maybe there are things in there that have taken a position of priority and they shouldn't. And maybe today is the day that we need to refocus to get our eyes back on you as opposed to the things and the stuff that we seek after. But I pray today that you would draw us closer to you today. If there be things that need to change, maybe it's our giving. Maybe we need to give. Maybe it's not just our giving. Maybe we need to start being more faithful in attending church. Maybe we need to be more faithful in our prayer lives. Maybe we need to be more faithful in serving other people. Lord, you examine our hearts today and show us where we need to change. Lord, help us to seek you above all else and help us to live lives that truly would please you. But we're thankful today for you. May you be honored as we live out our faith in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We are gonna do something this morning that we don't get to do every week, and that is to participate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to uh, not only fellowship with the body, actually participating in something together that others are also celebrating in, but it gives us the opportunity to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is one of the few things that Jesus told the disciples to do every time they came together. And they did. They would come together and they would eat. Now, we don't do this every single time. Part of that is because I think at times we can get caught up in the ritual of what we're doing here. And really the idea is to reflect on what his sacrifice means. 
So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I'm going to ask you as a church to simply consider what did Jesus' sacrifice mean to you? How have you been made new and different because of what he did? As Jesus met with his disciples the last night before he would be arrested, he broke bread with them and he said, this represents my body that is broken for you. He said, every time you eat this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. I want you to remember my body that is broken. He said, this cup of wine, and we're going to use grape juice in a moment, but this cup of wine represents my blood that is shed for you. And he said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He said, every time you drink this, I want you to remember what I did. Remember my sacrifice, the shedding of blood, and the new life that it gives. Well, today I want you to consider what Jesus' sacrifice means to you. Have you been forgiven of your sins? Do you live a life now that is different from what you lived before? Have you been redeemed? Do you have a hope that you did not have before? If you do, it is only because of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. We're going to have a uh, open invitation. Jeff is going to come up and he's going to help me serve this morning. And as we serve this morning, our desire is that you would truly be able to honor God as you do this. What we're going to do is everyone will come and receive the elements. And then once everyone has received them, they'll take them back to their pews. And then we'll all partake of the elements together. Uh, Jeff's going to basically hold the bread and the grape juice on this side. And I'm going to hold it on the other side. Let's pray once again for these elements. Father, as we come before you today, we're grateful for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. We recognize that these are two simple, common, ordinary elements that are used at mealtime. But in this ritual, Lord, we reflect on their meaning in a much different way. Thank you for the body that was broken. Thank you for the blood that was shed, the things that are represented in these two items. Lord, help us today to truly be appreciative of what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We invite you to come as you feel led and to receive the elements. If you would, center aisle, I don't care which way you come, the rest of you guys come back to the outer aisle. So.